And greetings to the 12 tribes scattered abroad and Shabbat Shalom. Thank you to all of you that are tuning in this Sabbath and blessings to all of you here. We are in Revelation chapter 2. Remember, if you like this teaching, give us some thumbs up and please subscribe to our channel. It really does make a difference out here as we broadcast to the nations. Revelation chapter 2, really excited and I want to delve right in today to this teaching. Now, as we start to journey into the book of Revelation, of course, we're going to come across many different understandings and interpretations. What I'm hoping to do is to give you the different perspectives and then to communicate and demonstrate to you why I believe a particular um, perspective of the interpretation of this apocalyptic book of prophecy. So, what we're looking at in chapter 2, these are real letters to real assemblies. But they're also a preview for us, a preview to church history in its downward, and you've got to admit, it is a downward spiral as the church circles the drain into Laodicean lukewarmness. And we live in that generation. I mean, it used to be just a few years ago when you would start to talk about your beliefs and your orthodoxy that people would be somewhat um, put out and maybe a little perturbed. But now our culture is, you know what? I don't care. You do what you're doing as long as you don't try and change what I'm doing. There isn't even this rub anymore because our whole society is do whatever you want. Don't care. You can be orthodox. You can keep the Sabbath, the feasts, the dietary requirements. You cannot keep the pagan holidays. But don't rain on what I do. That is really Laodicean. It epitomizes lukewarmness and it is dangerous because it unravels a culture to the degradation that we see today. But we are not only going to be looking at chapter 2 and viewing this apocalyptic literature from the past, we're going to be looking at it with historical truth. Now, We're going to see the present moving into the future with a thrust of the main movement of history. So you can't ignore history. It's very important, especially as we get into the apocalyptics. But you see, like I've said so many times before, we live in an age where man and woman, the average person on the street, is absolutely drunk on the dregs of sacred history rather than historical truth. They walk around in a liberal stupor and they're stupid due to sacred historical stupor. And there's a distinction, and I've said it and mentioned it many times, between historical truth and sacred history. Because sacred history makes fools of men as man edges ever nearer the precipice, suffering the consequences of ignoring historical truth. 
And that is a danger. But why does our culture embrace sacred history? And then why does our culture seem to just plug its ears, stick its head in the sand when it comes to historical truth? It's all for the sake of being a social justice warrior. When even the Bible, which is politically incorrect in every aspect, especially the Torah, people would rather ignore the biblical truth in favor of millennium social bliss and being, of course, a social justice warrior. It is truly epitomizes Laodicean liberality. And we live in that kind of world today where you don't want to talk historical truth because liberality and Laodicean lukewarmness loves manufactured sacred history. And there is a great divide when people like myself who love historical truth and the Bible, which marries together that, will actually speak it out in a culture of Laodicean lukewarmness. So, we've witnessed a war between those that espouse sacred history in our modern vernacular. What is it called? Fake news. Sacred history is fake news in our modern vernacular. And those who study to show themselves approved are an affront to fake news. Because what do we do? We rightly divide the word of truth, the Bible, but we also rightly divide the pages of history itself. And our society is out of step and out of touch with the reality. I mean, not only in this country, in Europe. I mean, just look what happened in the UK yesterday. The biggest landslide since before the Second World War. And they weren't expecting it totally out of step. Likewise, here in America in 2016 with the elections, totally out of step. Because the people that are out of step are biblically illiterate, and they are illiterate of historical truth. They've embraced something different. Laodicean lukewarmness. So there is some good news, though. Some very good news for all of us. And that is that Yahuwah is in control of history. And Yahuwah is moving history towards an ultimate victory through the agency of the assembly of the saints. That's you. That's you. And we need to stand strong and communicate biblical truth and historical truth in a day and age of apostasy. So, Revelation chapter 2 is going to be some five-fold fun, let me tell you. But we're not going to be able to get all of it today if I'm going to do my due diligence. Five-fold fun. We've got the Nicolaitans. We've got the synagogue of Satan. Now, if you even read the synagogue of Satan chapter passages, I should say, in the UK, which is Revelation 2 and 3, you will get a visit from the Metropolitan Police because it is now classified as a 
hate crime. Meanwhile, the Mohammedans can broadcast all over Birmingham and all of the other cities straight from the Quran with not a problem. Not a problem. Do you see how the saints are being persecuted the world over because you stand for the truth? And the truth is a person, the person of the resurrected Yahusha, the Messiah. And when you stand for him, then you are an affront to the Laodicean lukewarmness that has permeated our society. Get used to it. Get bold. Get courageous. Because we're going to enter into the land through the promises that have been given to Abraham and his seed as Paul was bold to the Galatians that rose up and were bold too. So I love this. We're going to be looking at the fivefold fun of the Nicolaitans, the synagogue of Satan, Pergamum, Balaam, and of course, Jezebel. But today, I'm going to mix it up for a more seamless teaching with the Nicolaitans and Pergamum in particular today, and then next week dedicate the whole teaching, because you know I like to stir up trouble, you know I like to try and get the Metropolitan Police involved, I'm going to dedicate the whole of next week's teaching to the synagogue of Satan, and then the subsequent week I'll get into Balaam and Jezzy. You know, Jezebel, that one that stalks the saints. So, you know, there's a lot for me to be excited about, and I hope a lot for you to be excited about too. But today, specifically, we're going to look at the Nicolaitans, and then we're going to look at Pergamum, and hopefully I'll be able to tie this in with our present-day reality. So, it's a big undertaking, isn't it? My goodness. But... Yahusha has come to inspect his assemblies. He's come to inspect his assemblies, us today and historically, and to issue words of warning and notes of encouragement. So yes, I can get all into the prophetic, ah! but also this is to edify us and to encourage us and to build up and equip the saints And when I look out and I see people, and we have all of you online that are viewing in and in the chat, keep it kadosh, keep it holy, and encourage one another. Encourage one another and support one another because you know what? This is the day and age that we live in. We take advantage of the technology while we have it, but ultimately it's for edification, teaching, so that we'll be bold as lions and go out there and do what Yahweh has called us to do. But Yahusha is inspecting us just as he was inspecting the assemblies historically, and he issues words of warning and notes of encouragement, and these powerful utterances, and they are powerful, they actually resemble oracles of the Old Testament, the Tanakh, really more than they do the New Testament or the Brit Hadashah. They're much more in line with the Tanakh, the prophets of old, the Torah, and the heavy hitters from of old, more so than they are of the Gospels or the New Testament, the Brit Hadashah. They're actually very Malkizedic steeped in their covenantal format and function. 
These things, says he, that holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the middle of the seven golden lampstands, or better menorah. I know your mitzvotes and your labor and your endurance and how you can't bear those who are evil. And you have tried them who say that they are shlechim, apostles, and are not. And you have found them to be lying mummers. Well, it doesn't say that, but that would be the modern vernacular to get it really home. And you have borne and have endurance, and for my name's sake have labored, and you have not fainted. Verse 4. Nevertheless, I do have something against you, because you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you are fallen, and make repentance. And do the first commands, or else I will come to you quickly and will remove your menorah out of its place unless you make repentance. Now, this is a big thing because before I had children, we went around our house and it was really hard for my wife, but we removed all of the crosses, all of the Christian symbols. Was that mean, did that mean that we didn't believe in Yahusha anymore? No. But we realized that these were like icons. They were paganized symbols. And what we restored to our house every Sabbath isn't the lighting of the two candles, which is a rabbinical tradition, but we restored to our house what? The symbol of the faith. What is the true symbol of the faith? It's not a crucifix. It's not a cross. It's not some icon of a saint that's dead. But it is the menorah, the, not the nine-branch Hanukkah, which is another rabbinical tradition, but the seven-branch menorah where Yahusha is the Shemesh, the central pillar that holds together the seven spirits, the seven congregations, the se- everything He holds together and he restores that into our houses when we come into the knowledge of what? Yahusha and wanting to keep his commandments a specific apocalyptic classification to the saints that have awoken to the biblical reality and historical truth. So for us, having the menorah, the seven branch menorah in our house is prophecy come true because he has made us through the Holy Spirit aware of our paganism, transgressions, and sin. So we got out the pagan clutter and brought in the biblical artifact of a seven-branch menorah. It's part of our journey. Otherwise, we find this. But this you have, that you hate the wicked deed of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Ruach, the Spirit, says to the assemblies. To him that overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the Garden of Eden of Yahweh. So ultimately, our journey is back to where we were evicted from, which is a jubilee-centric journey, if you will. 
So let me give you the breakdown. Five things. Each oracle contains a challenge. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Ruach, the Spirit, says to the congregations or assemblies. So for starters, the plural is hugely significant. Number one. We've got the preface of the charge to write to the overseer, the angel, the messenger of the assembly. Number two, we've got the identification, the identification of the visionary author and a past visionary prose. And number three, we have the acknowledgement, acknowledgement of the assembly's achievements. It's good to acknowledge your achievements. It's good to acknowledge the assembly's achievements, except, of course, Laodicea and Sardis. They didn't achieve anything. No acknowledgements. You don't want to be like them. And number four, we do get words of encouragement. I need some words of encouragement. You need some words of encouragement, don't you? Words of counsel. We also get some words of condemnation and warning. And of course, only Philadelphia and Smyrna escape the condemnation. They're two good witnesses, aren't they? And number five, we get a closing exhortation. Not to listen. Not to hear, but to shema, which is Hebrew for to hear and put some boots to it, obey. It's an action. It's not only, oh, well, I didn't hear. No, it's hear and obey. We get the exhortation to shema and a promise if we overcome. So that is the fivefold breakdown. And the structure really does show us that this is more than just simplistic prophetic words limited to these historical assemblies back here, though, of course, they were addressed. This does, to me anyway, it strikes a tremor felt down in my very boots because it strikes a tremor down into history's corridor past, and then it moves right up into our threshold today. And I see those boots marching right into our very present. This is the threshold of assemblies universal, the necessity of patient endurance in the period of enduring persecution. So you have to be aware. Look what is written. Unto the angel of the congregation of Ephesus write. So let's break this down. Angel, bishop, Presbyterian. I mean, what's going on here? Angel. The Hebrew word there would be malak, messenger. But it's not its guardian or ruling official, the teacher, its overseer, bishop, or pastor, but it's prevailing. Listen, I believe it's its prevailing spirit, the prevailing spirit over the assembly, the celestial counterpart to the earthly organism. This is very important to my understanding as I work through 
the assemblies in the book of Revelation. I don't think this is talking to the pastor, if you will, the bishop, if you will, of course, using those deliberately, using those very traditional Christian terms that have been used in historical past. This is talking about a celestial, spiritual, overseeing better, a prevailing spirit the celestial counterpart to the earthly organism or the spiritualized personification of the assembly. Because as we progress later and get into Pergamon, you're going to see the converse of this. I believe that our war is not against flesh and blood, but principalities. There's the principalities, of course, it tells us in the Psalms that Yahweh sits in the midst of the Elohim, the other Elohim. There are good Elohim and fallen Elohim. There is the good Elohim, what we see here, the good prevailing spirit over the assemblies, the celestial counterpart to the earthly organism. But when we get to Pergamum, we're going to see the dark side. We're going to see the devilish side of this celestial fallen entity that has walked into our very present. So I want you to understand the similitude, but also the distinction. Remember, the imperial cult was centered in Ephesus. Temples were built to Empress Claudius, Hadrian, and Severus. So there was a lot of wickedness going on in Ephesus. The major religious attraction in Ephesus was the temple of Artemis. And of course, Artemis, translated into the Latin, was Diana, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Now, I take a deep breath because, of course, you're, I'm an Englishman teaching you about the temple of Artemis, and then I translate that into the Latin, and I end up with Diana, and then my mind starts shifting, and I remember walking in Paris in 1997, late August, I believe, maybe early September, with my wife, and all of a sudden, I want to just start to go down a rabbi trail, but I think I can't, about the ceremonial sacrifice of Princess Diana in 1997, at this very because we are talking about principalities here that do actually seem to cohabit with humanity. You see, Princess Diana, I will digress just for a small moment, but I'll get back on track. It is important. She was sacrificed, of course, at the ceremonial altar of the Ulmer Bridge, of the Ulmer Bridge in Paris. And I walked right upon the very altar. We saw it laden with flowers. And it was a sacrificial altar of the Ulmer Bridge in 1997. But to really unpack that, I don't have time. I'd have to take you all the way back to Lord Raglan and the Battle of the Ulmer down in of course, the Crimea in September 1854. Because Lord Raglan, of course, who was in charge of the British armies, he sacrificed the commander-in-chief 
of the French army, along with about 200 French soldiers. Because Lord Raglan deliberately floundered around at the Battle of the Alma River, of which this cultic bridge in Paris is named after, and he sacrificed the commander of the French army, of course, Saint Arnaud, and close to 200 of the French at the Battle of the Alma. You see, there was a 143-year-old sacrificial payment that had to be paid, that was paid, of course, in full in August 1997 at the same sacrificial altar, not of the Crimea, but of course in Paris, the Alma Bridge, which was named after the Battle of the Alma in 1854 in, of course, the Crimea. Now, how do I know all this? Terrifying as it is, because I grew up in a Crimean boarding school where there was a lot of sacrificial seance and wickedness, that many of these traditions and many of this cultic sacrificial law was prevalent amongst the school historians. You see, I know that our war is not against flesh and blood, that there have been these occult pacts and rituals that have gone down through generations. And sometimes when it comes to such high society of the globalists elite, you may have a 143-year-old debt that needs to be paid. Eventually it will be paid. But if the British sacrificed at the Alma the commander-in-chief of the French army, then that debt would be paid eventually through the highest echelons of British privilege at that very altar itself. It just took, like I say, 143 years for the debt to be paid. But it, it was paid. It was paid. Now, I could string this even further and tell you that it wasn't just the French, the British involved in that war, but, of course, the Turks that were on the side of the British and the French, and then we could then make the correlation to why Dodi Fayed was in the car as well. But I wouldn't want to scare you. You see, I'm sick of this, and I'm amazed at the fantasy land of historical fabrication that people live in. And when you start to talk about this and string it together, along with the architecture that you see in our cities, it's terrifying. But we need to be aware, because just as we see in these opening chapters of chapter 2, there is a heavenly counterpart to the earthly organism. It can be good. It can be demonically wicked as well. And that's the battle that we'll see in the Revelation. So an appropriate Ephesian paraphrase would be of Joshua chapter 24, verse 15. If it seem evil unto you to serve Yahuwah, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served or the gods of the Ephesians in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, 
We will serve Yahweh. You see, of course, that's a paraphrase on Joshua 24, 15. What am I talking about? The Ephesians, they had to choose as well, just like we do. Choose one of the seven wonders of the world, one of them being Artemis, Diana, or choose to follow the seven pagan wonders of the world, or they could choose to follow the seven sons of Sceva, the disbelieving Jews, or the better option, they could choose to follow the one who holds the seven stars and the seven branch menorah in the seven assemblies. It's a choice of sevens, isn't it? Which one will you choose? We have to make the same choice today. I've made mine, but we need to address the choices because it's a dark world out there and people are playing around with destruction and they don't even realize it. Yahushua walks amongst the menorahs, meaning he's present in their midst and he's aware of our activities and he's aware of our trials. Now, Acts 19 informs us that there was a supernatural war going on in Ephesus. And that's what I'm talking about here. Not just the natural, but supernatural. And believers in Ephesus, according to Acts 19, were overcome. Why? Because they were not spirit-filled. They were not spirit-filled. You have to be spirit-filled to face down the enemy. Then, when? Then you can make some headway and get past the fleshly realm of good old-fashioned book-burning and rioting. Or today, the fleshly realm is YouTube trying to ban our channel or not show us up in the recommended section. Wow. My son is throwing bottles in the assembly. What does that mean? Time to take a sip from our sponsor. Were you reminding me I'm thirsty? But we need to do watch out, don't we? Because there are many false apostles. The faith is full of what? Lukewarm, sensualist, spiritless, New Testament-only folk. But the faith is also full of Judaizers, those that strive for Judaic Torah, void of the Malkizedic covenant. The faith is also full of Nicolaitans. The faith is full of Gnostic calendar warriors that would rather spike you than actually sit down and fellowship with you. So let's dive into the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. This is those who strive for church hierarchy and, of course, the pyramid structure of leadership and an accountability of their own kind and making. Basically, the Nicolaitans are any self-styled leaders who claim a position over the truly called man or woman who purposes in the spirit. I always shy away from the term leaders, leadership, leader, because I get nervous when I hear that. 
It's just like when somebody comes up to me and says, oh, I'm a Christian. You know, I tend to want to put my hand on my wallet and kind of back up to the wall and go, why are you telling me this? Why are you? Because you shouldn't have to tell me. It should be apparent by your behavior. If you're having to tell me you're a leader, if you're having to tell me you're a believer, then I get a little bit concerned. <laughs> What's, I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. Am, am I alone here? I mean, come on, it makes you wonder, doesn't it? Too many enter in as faux believers, but inwardly they ravage the assembly and cause dissension and splits. This is Nicolaitan in its fullness. It's a false faith. Those who come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly, of course, they're ravenous wolves. Yahushua spoke about this in Matthew 7.15. And it's time for us all to wake up to the deception because by their fruit, you'll recognize them. They're not simply self-deceived, but themselves deceivers. It's an expression of their character or, should we say, a lack of character. If I could sum it up, listen, because I'm being very serious here. I'm having fun, but do listen, because you do need to be aware. Every virtue, every virtue carries within itself the seeds of its own destruction. What do I mean? I hope you hear me on this. I have much experience in this because I have confronted this not once, not twice, but multiple times over my ministerial experience through birthing the saints into the fullness that we all are, as I was birthed by other mentors. We are all in this together. But every virtue carries within itself the seeds of its own destruction. What do I mean? The desire for these individuals, Nicolaitans, if we could call them that, is that they had to be leaders. They had to be teachers. But it was really soulish to the core. So much so that it created a climate of jealousy and covetousness deep within them. A place where disease and corruption could fester and grow until it could no longer be contained and it was triggered, usually by me, manifested and projected until it was fully realized. And then you get another congregational split. But they couldn't hide their seeds of destruction. Ultimately, it birthed itself. Does that make sense? Because it was born of the world desire. It was not born of the spirit, which is meekness, self-control, and of course, all of those glorious things that we see through the prophets and the apostles. You see, they received the spirit, the Nicolaitans, the spirit of the world, not the spirit of Yahuwah. If you began ministry in the spirit of Elohim, you are assured that the flesh isn't going to bring about a perfected teaching. I will never bring about a perfected teaching. It's impossible. 
no matter how much I study, it has to be perfected by Yahweh and prayer. It has to be. There's only so much that I can do. I can prepare. I can ensure that I've done what I need to do, but ultimately it cannot be birthed of me. There's the difference. I don't have to white-knuckle it, and neither do you. You just have to allow the Ruach to use you and be birthed of the Spirit, not birthed of the world. Most start out with ambition. Most start out with ambition, waiting to do something for God. That will always fail. Always. Every single time. It's an unholy zeal in the pursuit of truth. Galatians 3 verse 3 epitomizes this. Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now going to be perfected by the flesh? Of course not. Of course not. Good works and pure doctrine will never be a substitute for character, will never be a substitute for calling, and will never be a substitute for kingdom vision. Never. The faith once delivered to the saints was originally delivered to this region by a couple that was called by the spirit of Yahweh, not the spirit of the world, by a couple called Priscilla and Aquila in 52 of the Common Era. When Paul left them, he left them right here as he moved on to the carnal assembly of Corinth and then Antioch, where they were first called Laodiceans or Christians in Antioch. You see, there were severe problems in Ephesus, severe problems, and it was multifaceted. We had disbelieving Jews, we had the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, and really, if you break down this word Nicolaitans, it comes from the word nako, nako, which means to conquer the laos, or to conquer the people or the laity. But if you dig a little bit deeper, and you cut to the hard truth, and you're willing, like I'm willing to do, to upset some people, why not? Let's upset some people today. You'll find that Nicolaitanism was a form of Aramaism. Aramaism. Because the Aramaic word, Nicola, means let us eat. Let us eat. So follow with me here. The Greek word Nicolaitans was formed from the Aramaic Nicola combined with the Greek plural ending Tian. Tian. So the root meaning then of Nicolaitans, therefore, would be what? Let us eaters. Let us eaters. That's what it really means. Let us eaters. They set aside what? This is where it really cuts. This is where some people are going to be offended. Not my audience right here, but, you know, the audience out there with all the Christmas jingle bells. They would be the ones that would be offended because the etymological connection between Nicolaitans and lettuce eaters proves what? That this group was a group of Gentile Christ followers 
who were at odds with the decision of the Jerusalem Council, the will of Yahweh and the teachings of Moses. They were the lettuce eaters, meaning let us eat whatever we want. No restrictions on our appetites, sexual, dietary, let us eaters. We are the Nicolaitans. Do not tell us that we have to restrict our appetites. Is that the world that we live in today? Is that the Laodicean dynasty? It is. You see, they set aside the teaching of Moses and the teaching of the apostles given in Acts 15, and they were slipping back into their former pagan practices. The lettuce eaters, the Nicolaitans, it was twofold. Number one, they eat anything they liked. They indulged in whatever they wanted. Intimate relations outside of marriage, they justified it. Do you see that in the lukewarm church today? It's apparent everywhere. Dating. Excuse me? Where do you find that in the Bible? I don't see that. It's outrageous and it just drips off the lips like a common phrase. I thought we were Bible believers. I thought we had orthodox standards of purity and holiness that we were trying to pass down to our children. I don't want to hear things like that. I have young children. That's like a, almost like a cuss word. And people get upset with me because I say bloody. What else do I say? Oh, excuse me, children. I say bastards. I have no problem using anything that is in the King James Bible. Okay? And if it was used in the Bible, I will use it. But then I hear people saying words that aren't in the Bible, and that's fine. Like your derriere, and it begins with a B, and it has two T's on the end. Oh, that's, that's okay. And, you know, the C, and then the RA, and then there's a P somewhere. Right, that's okay. But no, I say bastard, which is, you know, somebody doing something outside of marriage that they're not supposed to be doing. And then I talk about bloody, like the bloody city. I mean, these are biblical words. But, of course, the social justice warriors would rather play the political correct game. I won't. And here's one of those ones where I won't. We cannot eat anything we like. And we cannot indulge in all of our natural appetites because then we end up Nicolaitans, Corinthians, disgusting brute beasts. And twofold, you end up devouring one another with your Gnostic know-how. Gnosticism, the pursuit of knowledge at the sacrifice of being spirit-filled in the truth of the teachings of the Torah. So it's a twofold deception. Christianity, which was birthed in Antioch, was birthed out of Nicolaitanism. They ended up being an antinomian, lawless group that accommodated itself to the religious and political requirements of the pagan society in which they lived. Is that the day and age we live in? It's Laodicean. What more can I say? Just like Balaam, if you go down that path, you'll end up cursing yourself and bringing judgment and disease upon your own camp. And that's what we see. 
And it's a very sad day and age to be living in a society like that. So, Nicolaitans, of course, lettuce eaters, meaning they did not restrict their appetites. Part of holiness is being different from the animals. Animals do not restrict their appetites. Saints, we restrict our appetites. And then we do not devour one another with our words, with our actions, and our deeds. And if we do that, then we get a commendation, not a condemnation. Let's go to verse 12 and look at Pergamon. Remember how I started out? This spiritual overseer of the assemblies with its earthly counterpart. But now we're going to see the dark side, a dark spiritual entity, and it is now involved at Pergamon. Verse 12 of Revelation chapter 2. And to the teaching overseer of the congregation of Pergamum write, These things says he who has a sharp sword with two edges. I know your mitzvot and where you dwell, even where Satan's seat is. And you hold fast to my name and have not denied the faith in me. Even in those days when Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwells. What we're dealing with here is dreadfully wicked. It's supernaturally wicked and it walks right into our politics today. It truly does. We're talking about the altar of Zeus Ultimately, or alternately, I should say, known as the Pergamum Altar, which was built between 197 of the Common Era and 156, um, excuse me, 197 before the Common Era. Did I say Common Era? I meant before the Common Era, and 156 before the Common Era. It was formerly in Pergamon which was in Asia Minor, which is today actually in Bergama in Turkey. Bergama in Turkey. And is now actually housed, this altar, it's actually now in Berlin, in the Pergamon Museum. It gets weird. So here we go. Okay. The whole end time, really, The whole end time, political, religious, and military theater of S.A. Tan is inaugurated. I hope that you listen to me now, because we're coming into a very big 2020 and 2024, a very big political epoch. Any way you slice it. I don't even care if you're political or not. It doesn't matter. We live in the world even though we're not in the world, we can't put our head in the sand and say, oh, it's not going to affect me, I'm not political. Well, last time I checked, Yahushua was extremely political. Last time I checked, the Apostle Paul was extremely political. He actually spoke with what? And the Bible says that you'll be before kings, priests, judges, and he'll give you the words to speak. 
you can put your head in the sand and say, well, I'm not political. I'm not talking voting here. I'm talking being aware of the days and age that we live in. Because this Pergamon altar speaks to us about the whole end time political, religious, and military theater of Satan. Because it is inaugurated from this very throne. From this very throne. This is a battle for power. This is a battle for knowledge. This is a battle for control. It's the synagogue of Satan. It's manifested in the Levitical priesthood. It's manifested in politicians. It's manifested with the warmongers. It's the Satan political inauguration throne. The Germans moved the whole altar of Pergamon, the throne of Satan, to Berlin at the end of the 19th century as they planned the 1,000-year millennium or what they called the Third Reich. They needed Satan's throne, his inauguration altar, to inaugurate the Third Reich. That's why they moved it to Berlin at the end of the 19th century. Now later, realizing the Third Reich had arrived, Hitler's architect, Albert Speer, used the altar and throne as the model for the Zeppelin Tribune. And this Zeppelin Tribune was a massive, massive field of course, used by Hitler to make his most grand speeches to the Nazis. Now, after the war, after the war, the Bolsheviks, the Soviets, the synagogue of Satan, they dismantled the altar of Pergamon, of which Hitler had used to address the whole of Nazi Germany in his grandest of speeches, if you could say such a thing. And the Soviets, the Bolsheviks, the synagogue of Satan, they dismantled this whole altar, the altar of Pergamon, and they shipped it to Leningrad in 1948 as war booty. And I can say booty because I'm talking about history here. I'm not talking about worldly things. But my children did bring that up the other day, and I had to clarify that that was okay in the context of history. Because, you know, we live in the world, but we're not of the world. Why did the synagogue of Satan, the Bolsheviks, move the Pergamum altar to Leningrad? Because they had to conjure up a spirit of socialism and their 1,000-year rule of socialism. Now, they later returned the throne of Satan in 1958. Why? Because they had already gone through all of their inauguration ceremonies. They had already conjured up the spirit of socialism and they had imparted their spirit of communism upon it, ready to be exported 
to the gullible West. And has that happened? You see, this is principalities in action used through its earthly counterparts, the leaders. So it's the converse of how we see the assemblies are addressed. There's a heavenly counterpart with its earthly counterparts. That makes sense? But you see this in the demonic realm too. Now you can connect this even further because Barack Obama went to Berlin and gave his speech on foreign policy and he received an anointing at the throne of Pergamon, the altar of Satan, when? In Berlin. And that anointing that he got by that satanic throne enabled him to win the Democratic nomination in Denver, Colorado. He specifically went to the throne, received the anointing from the principality, just as Hitler had, just as the socialists, the synagogue of Satan had when they imported it from Nazi Germany to Leningrad. And now it's moved back to Berlin. Barack Obama goes, gets the anointing from the principality, from the throne of Satan. He then comes back, wins the DNC nomination, receiving the anointing. The anointing of whom? From whom? Well, we'd have to listen to the prophet Daniel to find out who. Daniel chapter 10, verse 13, it is written, But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. That's very telling, isn't it? What does that tell us? The prince of Persia isn't a man, but a principality, a demonic spirit, the highest ranking demon or demonic agent, angel, excuse me, that can rule over a nation. In this instance, it's Babylon the lion, represented by the lion. And then we see the angel Gabriel and the angel Michael, they were dispatched by Yahuwah, and Michael went forth and he overcame this principality. And it had to be, if he overcame the principality, listen, track with me here, what would, that, what would have had to happen to that principality? It would have had to be bound somewhere, wouldn't it? If Gabriel and Michael were dispatched by Yahuwah to overcome this principality that had hindered Daniel for 20 and one days, that principality then had to be bound somewhere. That principality, the occult global Luciferics know where this principality is bound. It is the Pergamon altar where they go to get the anointing of this principality to thwart the plans of Yahuwah in the political, military, global scale that we live in today. Daniel chapter 10, verse 20, it is written, Then he said, Knowest thou wherefore I come unto thee, and now will I return to fight 
with the prince of Persia, that demonic entity that is bound and then conjured up by our leaders. History, history past, history present. And when I am gone forth lo, the prince of Grisha shall... What? There's another demonic host? Yes, the prince of Grisha shall come. Daniel 10 verse 21. But I will show thee that which is noted in the scripture of truth, that there is none that holdeth with me in these things, but Michael, your prince. So the principality is bound, yet able to possess and empower through the ritual of the Pergamon altar. Which is why the Nazis used it. Which is why the Bolsheviks, the synagogue of Satan, used it. Which is why the West is suffering from socialism. The principality invoked and imported to the West. Which is why Barack Obama went to get an anointing off of that altar to then bring in that spirit of socialism. Eight years locked and loaded into this country. Which is why you see we live in the world that we do. The principality is bound, yet it is able to possess and empower through the ritual of the Pergamum altar. And later, we'll discover that there are in fact four high-ranking principalities that, in, that, that are invoked at the four quadrants of the earth at the occult architectural sites, the altars, and they ascend through the processionary ceremonies or in our modern day vernacular, the inauguration rites. The inauguration rites. These are high-ranking principalities now, if you note, the border of the Garden of Eden, we find that the Euphrates River is about 1,800 miles long, and it goes from Turkey to the Persian Gulf. Now, in honor of S.A. Tan, President Obama then went on to make his initial acceptance speech in 2008 for the DNC presidential nomination in a near-perfect, you may have seen it, in a near-perfect replica of what Yahushua referred to as the throne of Satan. If you believe that's a coincidence, then your head is way buried in the sand. I could have said something else, but we have children here, and that word is not in the Bible. Actually, it is in the Bible, yes. And I, I have a little jokey teaching I did about three minutes long called Matthew Nolan is kicking ass because somebody else got all liberalized, you know, when I said that word. 
because I can get away with it because you're not sure because of my accent if I just mispronounced it or something. But this is where Obama got his original calling at the altar back there in Berlin and then had a replica for his presidential acceptance speech. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. And then it brings to mind, and I beheld another beast came up out of the earth. I mean, you think we ended up, I, I mean, I'm still paying for it today. You think we ended up with Obamacare by accident? I mean, you think he accidentally became a constitutional lawyer because of the purity of the Constitution and his thoughts towards it? What better way to unravel the Constitution by studying the legal loopholes? No, this was a satanic supernatural consequence of invoking the demonic forces from this location from this Pergamon altar. So the Bible is alive and the prophecies are with us today. Now, Galen, one of the most famous physicians of the ancient world who taught, of course, Hippocrates, where, of course, we get the, the physician's oath, the Hippocratic oath. Well, Galen was a native of Pergamon. He worshipped at the altar of Pergamon, the throne of Satan, and this is where Hippocrates studied his medicinal craft. So it's no wonder that Obama invoked that and delivered us Obamacare, because it's the same spirit, because not only Obama invoked the spirit from that throne of Satan, the one that invented Western, what we call now Western medicine, Hippocrates worshipped at that very throne too. So Obama went under a satanic enthronement ceremony to inaugurate his journey to the White House. A satanic enthronement ceremony to receive communication of his main policy, of course, Obamacare. Really, it's Luciferic care, isn't it? It's Luciferic care. Now, when the Medo-Persia bear, the empire, was overcome, then what happened to that principality? It had to be bound somewhere. Later, when the Grecian, the leopard, or Alexander the Great's empire fell to the Romans, that principality that Daniel encountered had to be bound somewhere, didn't it? All these conquering armies and kingdoms relayed by the prophet Daniel had one thing in common. They all ruled from Babylon, which is just off the river Euphrates. So I don't want to skip ahead to Revelation chapter 9, but you could see where I'm going, or we could be going. You see, when the Roman Empire the nondescriptive beast with seven heads and ten horns collapsed, and then out of the Roman Empire rose the Byzantine Empire, the principality had to be bound somewhere. These are high-ranking principalities 
still invoke today is what I want to communicate in all of this descriptive history and spooky prophecy. But it's true. From Bohemian Grove to the City of London to the Vatican to the so-called Temple Mount to all of the demonic architecture in Washington, D.C. It is deliberate, it is intentional, and it is why this book is so important for us to study. Because in Revelation chapter 13, verse 1, it says this, And I stood upon the sand of the water. So, I mean, really, it could be a river as much as a sea, couldn't it? And I saw a beast rise up out of the water. Could it be the Euphrates? It's possible. Having what? Well, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his head the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. Do you see all these principalities that Daniel came across that were bound, that are now being released? They had been invoked, and now they're being released. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat, and a great authority. And I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death. And his deadly wound was healed. And all the world wondered at the beast. So the anti-Messiah reforms the whole area of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece. And he puts the whole area under his subjection. You see, that's the whole of the Middle East. And once the European Union collapses, the Middle East is open for the picking. We're going to get some serious spirit cooking then because this is not a war against the flesh and blood. These are principalities that are invoked by the leaders that we live with today. I mean, Trump has got 2020 vision. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't need to anoint his eyes with eye salve so that he can see. So don't be fooled that he's got 2020 vision. Trump is Laodicean. He's neither hot or cold. But he does have the synagogue of Satan in his camp. And will that be manifest in 2024? We live in a time of enthronement ceremonies in modern parlance, inauguration rites. But now you'll see that we are up against principalities and the throne of Satan. We have questions, comments. Revelation chapter 2. Next week, I'll dedicate the whole chapter to the synagogue of Satan. And then the subsequent week, we will hit Balaam and the Jezebel spirit. So a lot of action in chapter 2, isn't there? And there was no way I was going to hit it all in one week. Okay, first question. 
What advice can you give regarding the removal of idols in the house when not all of the family are in truth regarding these? Wow, that's a tough one. A house divided cannot stand. So that is a tough one. I mean, we've all had to go through it. Um, removing, I think, idols and graven images is a big thing. It's a big thing. I think you all have to do a cleansing. We all have to do a cleansing of our home when we come into the knowledge of the truth, of having the testimony of Yahusha and wanting to keep the commandments. Because there's so many things that have just crept in unaware by the pagan society in which we live. And each family has to walk in the conviction and creed that they have been given. So you have to, you have to, you have to pray about it and seek counsel. I can't just you know, say, well, as for me and my house, this is what we did. We're a house in agreement. We're a house in unity. But even that, with me and my wife, as is often the case, one of us will get revelation before the other, and then we, in prayer, will come into unity. But have I been tempted to run ahead? Of course, never. Yes, I have, okay. And that has caused troubles. I need to be patient, and, and my wife too. Has she ever run ahead? Never. Of course, we have to press in and rely on the Spirit to bring us into unity. We're blessed. In our house, we always come into unity. It doesn't happen instantaneously, though a lot of the time it does. Sometimes we have to wait on the Ruah. Other houses are going to be different, and if it comes to a point of chaos, then sometimes there has to be separation when it comes to who will you choose this day to serve. And at that point, then, those decisions have to be made. But that's a very complex question. But my answer to that, I hope you can see where I was going. Yes. All right, next question. Is Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism offspring from the Nicolaitans? Yes, very much so, very much so. So what we had, of course, Antioch, where they were first called Christians. This whole Nicolaitan inception was the birthing of the church. Now, as you are more Eastern, you get more orthodoxy. And then as the faith traveled further West, it became Romanized. And then you have this division between the Eastern church, of course, based in Constantinople, and then the Western church, based upon Rome. And even when I was getting into some more modern history to you and talking about Princess Diana and connecting that back with Lord Raglan and the Crimean War, that was all based upon, of course, um, the war between the Church in Constantinople and the Church of Rome. The Church of Constantinople and the Church of Rome, that was the whole thrust of that. So, Yes, that is its origin, Antioch, Christian, Nicolaitan, and Creed. All right, here's another question. What did Nicolaitans teach? They most probably threw a shrimp on the barbie. Okay, and here's another question. What is the name to the teaching that the wearing of seat seat was only for Levitical priests. Oh, there's better people to ask than me. 
I don't know. I could find out, but I can't quite remember at this point. Any other questions? No? All right. Baruch Hashem Yahuwah. So blessings. Oh, yes, we have one in-house here. Splendid. You guys have been quiet, so well behaved. What happened in Benghazi? Is that um, sacrifice, or could that could that fit in with you know, the process? Okay. So the question was, what happened in Benghazi? You know, I I don't know. I mean, I know what happened in the news. I haven't made a connection with scripture, but you know, I'm sure there's some out there that possibly could look into that. But, you know, what we do find, I mean, I think what I was trying to communicate today was this overarching reality of this satanic throne and the principalities that are good. Of course, Revelation chapter 2, the overseeing principality, heavenly of Yahweh's heavenly throne room involved with man. But then you have the converse of that, the darkness and that's what we're seeing today manifest and a lot of these rights have been invoked through this satanic enthronement what we would call today inauguration ceremony so anyway blessings guys tune in next week where we go into revelation chapter 2 we'll be looking at of course next week we'll be delving into the synagogue of satan Remember, if you like this video, give us some thumbs up. It really does make a difference. And subscribe to the channel. And if you want to get a ping in the pocket, maybe in the middle of the week or something, if we do an upload, hit the notifications bell and we'll catch you live next Shabbat.